So over the last four weeks, I've been exploring different ways of relating to the current coronavirus situation with the aim of finding resources and strengthening resilience to navigate the various challenges that all of us are going through. Challenges as individuals, as couples, as families, as sanghas, as societies. And I wanted to highlight how universal our challenges are, because for me at least, it helps to feel that I'm not alone in this. It helps to feel connected to the bigger picture, the truth that right now, almost every being in the world is affected by this COVID-19 situation one way or another. And in some ways, this uh, keeping this broader perspective has actually helped by me being in Birmingham in the UK right now, because right outside my window, I look out into an old churchyard and there are big old trees there that right now are just bursting into vibrant green leaf. And under those trees, there are graves from the 1800s. And when I go for my walks around the network of canals, I'm aware that they were built in the 1700s. And both of those are relatively recent in terms of British history. But as I've been reading about the city's past and I walk around the old streets, it's very clear, it's tangible that people have come and gone. They've lived and died here for centuries and centuries and centuries. And just feeling that helps to reduce the sort of inflated importance of my own life, my life in this time. And it's a little bit easier to connect with the truth of my own mortality when I'm surrounded by the buildings and the artifacts and the history of the countless beings who've gone before me. So last week I was sharing some reflections by Rebecca Solnit, the American author who's um, been researching the effects of disasters on society. And this week she published a new essay called the impossible has already happened. What coronavirus can teach us about hope? And in it, she talks about how coming into closer contact with death can be a powerful catalyst for good. She says, I have found over and over that the proximity of death in shared calamity makes many people more urgently alive, less attached to the small things in life, and more committed to the big ones, often including civil society or the common good. But even though many of us have seen the sobering and the awakening effects that this situation has had on us, the willingness to open up more fully to the reality of death is not one that comes easily for most people. It goes against the grain of some really deep conditioning so now that the intensity of the coronavirus situation might seem like it's starting to wane, perhaps especially in New Zealand, it could be very easy to kind of take a collective big breath out and go right back to normal, even back to sleep. And yet this is an unprecedented opportunity to look more carefully and to investigate more closely how we have been living our lives 
and to see if those ways are actually in alignment with our deeper values or not. And if they're not, to see where and how we might make changes. So this is how Rebecca Solnit puts it. She says, we have reached a crossroads. We have emerged from what we assumed was normality. Things have suddenly overturned. One of our main tasks now, especially those of us who are not sick, are not frontline workers, and are not dealing with economic or housing difficulties, is to understand this moment, what it might require of us, and what it might make possible. A disaster, which originally meant ill-starred or under a bad star, changes the world and our view of it. Our focus shifts and what matters shifts. What is weak breaks under new pressure. What is strong holds and what was hidden emerges. Change is not only possible, we are swept away by it. We ourselves change as our priorities shift, as intensified awareness of mortality makes us wake up to our own lives and the preciousness of life. So while it's true that contemplation of death helps to reveal the preciousness of life, it needs to be done with balance, with equanimity, which I'll come back to soon. Now, generally, we have a tendency to overvalue life and avoid the reality of death at all costs, instead of understanding that these two are inseparable aspects of the same process. So the Buddha recognized this fear of any kind of impermanence as a major obstacle to the deepening of wisdom and compassion. So he encouraged his followers to reflect on the truth of change, of impermanence, and our own mortality every day. In Buddhist countries around the world, as many of you know, monastics and lay followers chant what are known as the five subjects for frequent recollection, at least once a day. How many of you are familiar with that set of chanting or may have done it? Anybody? No? Okay, so as I was saying, it's a pretty standard practice and I'd like to read you one translation of those verses from the Hamravati chanting book. I am of the nature to age, I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my karma, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abide supported by my kama. Whatever kama I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So I'd like to read you a slightly different translation of those same verses, this time from Thich Nhat Hanh in the Plum Village chanting book. I'm of the nature to grow old. 
There is no way to escape growing old. I'm of the nature to have ill health. There's no way to escape having ill health. I'm of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground on which I stand. So I wonder, what's it like to hear those reflections? Depending on where we are in our practice, there can be a wide range of responses. And in my own experience, the first time I heard them, it felt a bit like having a bucket of ice cold water thrown in my face. And I felt sort of shocked and indignant and outraged. But underneath that surface reaction, there was also a kind of a sobering, a waking up as I very grudgingly acknowledge the truth that these words are pointing to. And I've seen similar reactions in other people too, sometimes resistance or rejection or anger or blankness, disconnect, shutting down, or irritation, impatience with the perceived emphasis on negativity. And sometimes people want to move quickly on to something more uplifting and inspiring like mudita or metta or hope. And I'll be saying more about hope soon, but just to say that I've had many of those reactions myself to this invitation to contemplate death, and I still do at times. And in some ways that's the point of them, to show us where we still have work to do to more fully and deeply open to the truth that they're trying to show us. Not as an exercise in masochism, but because living in alignment with this truth is freedom. And the opposite, avoiding, ignoring, denying this truth is suffering. Our various escape strategies might work for a little while, but eventually we get the kind of wake up call that I spoke of a few weeks ago one or other of those so-called heavenly messengers shows up. The first three messengers, as you may remember, are the aging person, the sick person, the corpse. And the fourth is the contemplative, the spiritual practitioner. And this is the way out of our existential crisis. So there's a quote at the start of one of John Kabat-Zinn's books that says something like this. One who dies before they die does not die when they die. I'm not sure where it comes from. I don't think he was the original person who to come up with it, but it sounds like it may come from the Zen tradition. It has that flavor of Zen paradox. One who dies before they die does not die when they die. And in some ways it can sum up a way of looking at this whole path of practice because insight meditation is designed to show us where and how we hold on, resist, avoid, deny, cling to delusion. 
it shows us these things so that we can release the grip of that clinging and instead experience ease, happiness, peace, freedom. So the invitation is to bring awareness to what we're resisting dying to, to look at where and how we try to fix things, fix ourselves, fix other people, fix our lives. Um, here I mean fix in both senses of the word, fix as in to repair or to improve something, and fix as in to make static, stopped or frozen. And this fixing is a very common strategy that most of us have to navigate flux, to make sense of and orient ourselves in a constantly changing world. But like most strategies, when it's applied unconsciously, trying to fix the flux is maladaptive. It takes a lot of time and energy, and it's doomed to failure. Because life and death are inseparable. We literally can't have one without the other. So the danger then is as life slowly starts to get back to normal, that we scramble too quickly to get to make things solid and stable again and miss the opportunity to open up to new possibilities. So when we're in crisis, it's pretty normal to veer wide, wildly from hope to hopelessness and back again. But in terms of the Buddha's teachings, this movement from one side of the pendulum to the other is actually part of the problem. And even though Rebecca Solnit's essay has the subtitle, what coronavirus can teach us about hope, we need to be careful about how we relate to the idea of hope. So in English, we talk about pinning our hopes on something. And in that language, we get a sense how even hope can be used to fix, to make static, permanent. It can be a very seductive way of asserting our will on the world again, instead of opening up to the reality of change. So in the Buddha's teachings, it's not that we shouldn't have any aspirations. We definitely, for example, want to relieve suffering wherever we can. But our aspirations, our intentions, our actions are all grounded in the truth of change and the understanding that we don't have nearly as much control over things as we'd like to think we do. So this keeps our hope grounded in reality. And perhaps in line with that, the Buddha's teachings tend to put more emphasis on equanimity. And equanimity I've been touching into quite a bit over these last few weeks as the capacity to move beyond duality, beyond binaries, to appreciate the whole spectrum of life. Now, unless we have some mindfulness training, most people tend to default into wanting just one small part of that spectrum and not wanting most of the rest of it. And the Buddha recognized this tendency to cling and resist in relation to our life circumstances in a list known as the eight vicissitudes or the eight worldly winds. And he pulled these eight qualities out as areas where we tend to commonly get stuck, reactive to. But just to say that the metaphor of wind implies that these are natural and impersonal processes 
just like the weather, conditions are constantly changing. Trying to stop that change to control the wind is obviously futile. So when you hear this list of what the eight worldly winds are, just notice which side of the binary you tend to orient to. So the first is pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and infamy. Now on one level, it's pretty obvious. We want to only experience pleasure, gain, praise, fame, and never to experience pain, loss, blame, and infamy. But is that realistic? How many of you have ever experienced only pleasure and gain and praise and fame in your life so far? Anybody? I mean, we know intellectually that that's not the case, and yet unconsciously perhaps many of us are trying to achieve, get to one side of that balance and avoid the other. So practicing equanimity is a powerful antidote to this delusion. It's a wisdom training because when we see clearly, we see the truth of impermanence and we understand that these eight winds are constantly swirling. Sometimes there will be pleasure, then there'll be pain, there will be gain, there will be loss, there will be praise, there will be blame, there will be fame, there will be infamy. So I'd like to read you part of the actual sutta that points to these teachings. It uses slightly different translations for praise and blame and fame and infamy, but you'll still get the meaning. It says gain and loss, status and disgrace, censure and praise pleasure, and pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones bring no resistance. One's welcoming and rebelling are scattered, gone to their end, do not exist. Knowing the dustless, sorrowless state, one discerns rightly has gone beyond becoming to the further shore. The further shore is a synonym for freedom, for Nibbana. So right now, for most of us, it's pretty obvious that, as the sutta says, conditions are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Because of our mind's inbuilt negativity bias, though, most of us have the tendency to see the problems and the challenges and the suffering that come from change. And we tend to reflexively hold on to one side and not see the other possibility. So equanimity is the invitation to keep seeing the whole range, to not just land on one end of the spectrum or the other. So there's a famous poem, again, from the Zen tradition that beautifully expresses the benefits of this balanced acceptance. 
It's called Xin Jin Ming, sometimes translated as trust in mind. And it's a very long poem, so I'll just read you the first few lines, which some of you probably know. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. To set up what you like against you, what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. And we can think of equanimity as the antidote to that dis-ease or disease. And we can develop equanimity as a support for staying steady with the truth of impermanence. And also for staying steady with the truth of unsatisfactoriness. The fact that nothing in conditioned reality is capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. And understanding this on deeper and deeper levels is really the key to freedom. Now, it's possible that for some of you, this is sounding a bit bleak or pessimistic. But again, this can reveal the strategies that we use to try to get solid ground under our feet, to recreate the illusion of permanence and stability and to fix the flux. So when I find myself caught in those kind of old reflexes, Pema Chodron is one of my favorite authors. Many of you know her. She's an American Tibetan nun. And most of her books have titles like When Things Fall Apart, or The Places That Scare You, Comfortable with Uncertainty, Taking the Leap, and so on. There's definitely a theme there. And what I appreciate about her particular approach is that she doesn't try to make the teachings cozy or comfortable. Just like the Buddha, she tells it like it is. And there's something bracing, refreshing about hearing her express, for example, the benefit of cultivating hopelessness. <laughs> That's not something we hear much about in mainstream life. So I'd like to uh, finish with quite a long quote of hers that points us again towards the freedom that comes from facing into impermanence. So Pema Chodron says, turning your mind towards the Dharma does not bring security or confirmation. Turning your mind towards the Dharma does not bring any ground to stand on. In fact, when your mind turns towards the Dharma, you fearlessly acknowledge the impermanence and change and begin to get the knack of hopelessness. The difference between theism and non-theism is not whether one does or do not, does not believe in God. Theism is a deeply seated conviction that there's some hand to hold, that if we just do the right thing, someone will appreciate us and take care of us. It means thinking that there's always going to be a babysitter available when we need one. 
and we're inclined to abdicate our responsibilities and delegate our authority to something outside ourselves. Non-theism is relaxing with the ambiguity and the uncertainty of the present moment without reaching for anything to protect ourselves. Non-theism is realizing that there's no babysitter that you can count on. The whole of life is like that. That is the truth, and the truth is inconvenient. As long as we're addicted to hope, we feel that we can tone our experience down or liven it up or change it somehow, and then we continue to suffer. In a non-theistic state of mind, abandoning hope is an affirmation. It's the beginning of the beginning. You could even put abandoned hope on your refrigerator door instead of more conventional aspirations like every day in every way I'm getting better and better. We hold on to hope and it robs us of the present moment. If hope and fear are two different sides of the same coin, so are hopelessness and confidence. If we're willing to give up hope that insecurity and pain can be exterminated, then we can have the courage to relax with the groundlessness of our situation. When we talk about hopelessness and death, we're talking about facing facts, no escapism. Giving up hope is encouragement to stick with yourself, not to run away, to return to the bare bones, no matter what's going on. If we totally experience hopelessness, giving up all hope of alternatives to the present moment, we can have a joyful relationship with our lives, an honest, direct relationship that no longer ignores the reality of impermanence and death. So thank you for your kind attention. I'd like to take time now to hear anything you might like to share, any reflections or comments. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.